0: Good morning! You're listening to the Brutnose Podcast. Sorry, it will probably take me a few minutes before I can kickstart my anglophone, but you'll just have to bear the accent for now. Anyway, I I hope you've all had a nice summer, and uh, maybe you haven't had a nice summer because you're... House was built on a corded ware burial ground. Or something like that. Anyway, today we're going to talk about water. I know, yeah, water is pretty cool, huh? Um, but we're not going to talk about wetland sacrifices again. No siree. Today we're going to talk about islands that float. That vanish before your very eyes. That are hidden by smoke or mist or... Sometimes just kind of just, just just move, move, moves away. Sometimes they move away at will. You know, they just ah. Uh, sometimes they just uh, don't don't like to stay in the same place. You know, they can't be found in the same place twice. You know, whatever you do, you. Like, the one thing you could expect, you, you would think, of, of an island was for it to stay put. You know, the the mountain doesn't just go away. When you go to the uh, post office, you don't expect expect it to suddenly vanish, you know. When you want to send a letter, you know, you you don't want to have to chuck a piece of steel into the post office or throw a knife at it or... or carry a torch, or get your prized pig to make love to the mailman in order to force the post office to stay in the time-space continuum. But this is exactly what we're going to talk about today, or tonight, or whenever you're listening to this. Maybe you're listening to this on on your commute. Maybe uh, when you look across from where you're sitting, you might see somebody else with, with earbuds that old man, doesn't he look oddly like yourself? He could be listening to this episode right now and think the same about you. And you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast. My name is Erik Sturluson. You can call me Eric, or you can call me whatever you like. You can go to BruteNorse.com and contact me in the contact form there. You can call me whatever you like. This is The Fortunate Isles. Water, as we have already established in a previous episode, is a transient element. Tides ebb and flow, rivers run, rain falls, and mists descend and lift. In other words, water is wet, and what else is new? So far, things are quite intuitive. It fits in with a very concrete expectation we have of the physical world around us that complements the seemingly static nature of Earth The ground that we walk on. That what we can see with our own eyes, and adheres to these expectations, are reality. And what we don't see, or defies these expectations, is not real. Yet, throughout most of human history, people have had no problems accepting the existence of things that they couldn't see, or rationally explain, or even experience at first hand. And they also believed in things that were set apart from, and distinctly defied their everyday expectations of the world around them. And in reality, I do think that we still do this, though we think that we don't. And this brings us to a fun little term called minimally counterintuitive concepts. A minimally counterintuitive concept is any normal thing that works and exists exactly as we would expect it to, but somehow violates our preconceptions in a striking way that immediately reveals That it is, in fact, something completely different from what it appears. This gives it a certain strangeness. Strange things are easier to remember than just normal things. And this makes MCI ideas memetic. It's infectious. Online meme culture is a good example because it often incorporates MCI elements. And more often than not, it is also absurd. Just a few minutes ago, I did try to insert a minimally counterintuitive concept into your head with the old man that looks like you. First of all, it's odd that somebody who is not us should look like ourselves. And furthermore, I have a hunch that most of the people who listen to this podcast are not old men. Nonetheless, you might have a few things in common. You might be a man. You're certainly both human beings, and you're both passengers on the same mode of transportation. Similarly, the vanishing post office messes with our expectation and it's a reasonable expectation that locations retain their integrity. The way we generally see the world isn't open to the possibility that the presence of some place in time and space is relative and fluctuating. If any location could just zap out before your very eyes you would be forced to question everything you know about physical reality. But many societies have been very open to this possibility. In Norse culture, you have the concept of the filgia, which is, I guess, a sort of a guardian angel or spirit helper or an alter ego that might have been conceptualized as a person's mind, but moves ahead of the individual and simulates or acts out upcoming events before they actually play out. We've also talked about before that Old Norse cosmology works with a fluid matrix of exits and entrances between worlds that are not consistent with the geography you can simply draw out on a map. Rather, it is almost as if they imagined the existence of multiple hyper-realities, if you will, which is, these are my words, not theirs, of course, that overlap with one another on certain occasions. Sometimes the Mead Hall of the Living merges with Valhalla, the Mead Hall of the Dead. And even if we are talking about legend, mythology, folklore, I would caution against dismissing this as simply epic motifs that are irrelevant to how people actually saw the world in the Viking Age, the Middle Ages, in antiquity, or whatever. But with that being said, I'm not going to embarrass myself by claiming to have any expertise in the field of religious experience or the literality of folklore. On the subject of minimally counterintuitive ideas, which I am not an expert in either, These appear to be hardwired into our brains. Pascal Boyer, who defines religion as the existence and causal power of non-observable entities and agencies, asserted that most, if not all, religious phenomena fit the bill of MCIs. But, as I've hopefully illustrated by example, MCI ideas aren't just about things that quote-unquote aren't real. There are many examples of MCI that are just as tangibly real as me talking to you right now. Through surrealist kennings, Viking Age poetry uses MCIs to manipulate our expectations for aesthetic and mimetic gains, inviting us to imagine the grimness of battle as a merry drinking party for ravens, thereby inverting the regular dread of battle. Or imagine ships as horses that gallop across the waves. A very quotidian example of an MCI would be something as simple as household pets, who are often given human names and ascribed personalities and motives that are not generally projected onto other animals. Yet another example of an MCI could be a voice calling from the ocean. In Old Norse, they might have called such a thing sjóraust, literally a sea voice, but you won't find this word in any dictionary. Instead, it was envisioned by the British artist Richard Moult. So to set the mood for this hour of maritime strangeness, I present to you the fourth movement from Richard Moult's release, Sjoraust. obscure and lonely, Haunted by ill angels only, Where an Eidolon named Night, On a black throne reigns upright. I have reached these lands but newly, From an ultimate dim Thule, From a wild weird clime that lieth sublime, Out of space, out of time. Such reads the first stanza of Edgar Allan Poe's poem Dreamland, in which he describes a strange Carcosan island beyond the boundaries of rational experience. It refers to the mysterious land of Thule, originally named by the Hellenistic explorer Pythias in the 4th century BC. Exactly what or where Thule was has been a matter of debate for more than 2,000 years, in part because Pythias' original description has been lost, and is often referenced by authors who dismiss the claims he apparently made of a land so distant and extreme that it warps the laws of nature itself, and where earth, water, and air has joined together in an introversible jellyfish-like natural monstrosity. There's been no shortage of guesses though. Both Ireland, Greenland, Iceland and the coasts of northern Norway and even Estonia have been identified as the land of Thule by various authors over the ages. But we are less interested here in the physical concrete location and more about the notion that there are places in the sea that defy our expectations in very striking ways. Even the very concept of an unvisitable place seems to be a paradox. Irish myth and legend is rife with such distant lands and fairy isles and other worlds. One is the land of He brazil which I probably botched and is hidden by a perennial mist that only lifts for one day every seven years. This is rather similar to other Irish notions of the other world, for example the land of Tirnanog, a land of eternal youth beyond the waters that can only be visited. By invitation. Anybody that knows anything about the Viking Age would acknowledge that the Norse and Irish shared many of the same stomping grounds. They also shared stories and influenced each other's cultures. If you read the Icelandic sagas, especially the ones that describe the initial settlement period, you wouldn't think that there was a lot of Irish influence in Norse culture apart from trade. But there's also an unspoken exchange of ideas that you can see in Norse mythology and also Norse literature more broadly. Iceland was the carrier of Norse literature in many ways, and the peak of its production was a time when Iceland really wanted to rub elbows with Norway. Because Norway was a really huge ass deal in the 13th century. Because at the time it was growing rapidly into the largest kingdom in all of Europe. An empire that stretched from western Scandinavia to Greenland and down to the Irish Sea. Norse literature is really good at faking objectivity. If we delve into the minds of the people who wrote the sagas, then we start to unravel some motivations that lie beneath the surface. But never, 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 never forget, Icelandic chroniclers knew the power of the written word. But did saga authors generally think that what they wrote was true? Then you have to ask, what kind of saga are we talking about? Presuming we're talking about the so-called historical sagas, you know, the sagas of the Icelanders and so forth. Yeah, for the most part I do think so. Because many sagas were performed or read out loud in front of a storytelling audience that I think would have been able to dispel the worst bullshit if they heard it. You have to imagine almost some sort of Hippocratic oath sworn by the saga writers themselves that they are not trying to lead people astray by the things that they are writing. And I guess that's my abbreviated, extremely simplified account of Saga criticism. Point being that there are certain exotic impulses in Norse culture that were simply smoothed over by the curatorial work that is the body of Norse literature. But then again, Saga writers participated discursively in history. They are consulting sources they're having conversations, they're talking to the elders, or they're talking with specialists with a peculiar kind of interest in the past, and trying to establish what are past events, what went down, uh, why do we hate those people, why do those people suck, why is it this royal dynasty instead of that one, and so on, and so on, and so on. But they're also talking about, is it true that Halstein Stain great-great-great-great-great-grandfather turned himself into a woman every ninth night? because he lusted after the Barrow Troll whom he visited to get fucked by. Yeah, sure. And they also wrote about Vinland, a mysterious land that is just bursting with wine and other things that Icelanders didn't really have regular access to. Such as, uh, wheat and trees? Definitely some food for thought here. Anyway, I mentioned Hebrazil, this Fairyland that you can only see once every few years, but never really visit. This land seems to have made it into Norse literature under a variety of different names, such as a certain Irland Itmikla, or Ireland the Great, and also Huitramanaland or White Man's Land, Quite ironically, this so-called white man's land is sometimes referred to as a place inhabited by a certain race of trolls or ogre-like beings who are called skrælingar. Those among my listeners who are familiar with Norse literature will of course know that skræling refers to usually Inuits and other Arctic ethnicities and also Native Americans more generally. And in case you wondered about the etymology, well... It seems to be related to a word meaning to shrink, so the shriveled ones or weakling, and it's, uh, it's not an ethnic slur, but yeah, it's an ethnic slur. But here's the kicker, these descriptions of white man's land or the so-called Ireland the Great may have inspired later descriptions of America. But I'm not talking about the potato famine or manifest Destiny. I'm talking about Vinland. But of course, the idea about the Skrælingar can't kind have of come from the folklore. It must be some kind of, I don't know, art imitating life sort of thing. But that sounds more like something for the brute Norse special on dehumanization, which I'm, I'm actually fairly sure that we'll actually record at some point. Now, regarding the Norse discovery of Vinland, We find that there are many inconsistencies in the Norse texts themselves, suggesting different opinions of what and where Vinland was. To many, the existence of Vinland might have been little more than a geographical factoid, as yet another strange peripheral land inhabited by equally strange people, and this is where we have to distinguish between the map and the terrain. We do know that the Norse made it as far as Newfoundland, and nobody will lock you up for conceiving that they might have launched minor expeditions even further south. Either way, the Norse presence in America was not built to last, but even if the colony collapsed, people had become aware of the fact that this land existed, and it did not go unmentioned. And since these sagas were written down centuries after the fact, we can see how historical reality might get smudged out by legend. Much, much later, in uh, 1911, the Norwegian explorer, diplomat, womanizer, sportsman, and scientist Fridtjof Nansen published a history of Arctic exploration until the 16th century, called Núr i Tåkeheimen. It was also published in English as In Northern Mists the same year, and in it he notes not only a discrepancy in the placement of Vinland in the sagas, but a peculiar similarity to the other worlds of Irish mythology, which are frequently lumped together in a big old pile called the Fortunate Isles. The Fortunate Isles is a translation of the Latin term Insula Fortunata, and goes all the way back to Greek and Roman natural histories, which made their way into medieval scholarship. There it was alleged that the Fortunate Isles were a set of wonderful and strange islands in the oceans west of Africa. And here's a quick note about our terminology. I will be using Vanishing Island alongside the Fortunate Isles and only in part use them interchangeably. The method to my madness will be that Vanishing Isle will refer to not so distant places, but islands around the Scandinavian coast that are held to vanish or appear or used to do so in the past. They partially act as a myth of origin for many existing places. It is true that many of them share certain characteristics with the fortunate isles of classical tradition, but these are more akin to exotic utopias or natural wonders, overlapping with the belief in lost civilizations like Atlantis or Lemuria, which the Vanishing Isles certainly are not. The widespread belief in not-so-distant places that are unreachable because of such magical properties seems to be a particularly Scandinavian and Northern Celtic phenomenon. Back to Fritsch of Nansen. Nansen was also frequently depicted as a viking explorer in national romantic art in the early 20th century, and even to this day there is a cult of personality associated with Nansen that is very much alive. It is interesting to note from such a deified figure that his own view of Vinland expeditions was not only scientific and nuanced, but that he also went beyond the call of duty to debunk what he considered to be essentially tall tales it seems very prudent to start with the saga of eric the red the saga of eric the red accounts in extreme brevity how vinland was discovered and actually refers to vinland as vinland itgoda which means vinland the good it was apparently discovered by accident after leif erikson a greenlandic colonist had drifted aimlessly at sea for quite some time. At some point, he chanced upon an island that nobody had ever seen before. There were fields of wheat that sowed themselves and vines of wine grapes, hence the name, and curly birch trees large enough to use as housing material. I'm gonna have to say that there are numerous elephants in this room. First of all, wheat did not exist in North America prior to the colonial era. And even in Norse culture, it was an uncommon and very fancy crop. There were and are wild grape varieties, but not where the Norse presence has been evidenced. And wine was a luxury that many people would never taste outside of church until the Hanseatic wine trade outcompeted the price of domestic beer in Scandinavia, which unleashed a tsunami of urban drunkenness. Then there's the curly birch, which is a genetic mutation of birch trees, causing a twisted, visually striking ornamental grain that is much desired by woodcarvers, who would use it mainly for bowls and knife handles. To build a house out of such a material sounds so extravagant that it borders on fantasy. As the Vinland discovery grew ever more distant, these stories only get more fantastic, by the way. And by the 14th century, descriptions of Vinland include wine trees that are large enough to use in both building and structural beams for houses. If this characterization of Vinland the Good sounds too good to be true, this is a property it shares with many later vanishing so-called Fortunate Isles. Another oddity in the saga of Eric the Red is the fact that Leif Eriksson gains the nickname Inhepna, or The Fortunate. The saga writer, or writers seems confused as to why, and claims that he earned it after rescuing a bunch of shipwrecked schmucks, which surely would be the lucky ones. It seems like a weird coincidence that this Leif the Fortunate found a land that bears all the trappings of a fortunate isle. And I'm not just taking this as the position of a naysayer, because the more we start looking for parallels, the more suspicious it gets. In a different century back in Norway, Fortunate Anders became the name of a legendary settler of a vanishing isle off the coast of Hologaland. It is also noteworthy that the Saga of Verge the Red is not the first source to mention Vinland at all, having been composed sometime in the middle of the 13th century. The very first person to mention a Norse Vinland was Adam of Bremen in 1075. This is the same guy who gave us that elaborate account of the Temple of Uppsala. Adam makes the claim that King Swain of Denmark had told him all about Vinland, so named because of its wild grapes and excellent wine. Moreover, Danes had told him that self-growing grains grew there in abundance. Adam might be the first person to provide a description of Vinland, but he was not the first to describe an island with these properties. In fact, Adam's description reads like it was pulled straight out of the Visigothic scholar Isidore of Seville five centuries earlier. He described a set of Insulae Fortunatae, or Fortunate Isles, located nearest to the setting sun, that is, the west, if you're an idiot, that overflow with wild vines, fruits, and vegetables that grow like grass. In other words, when Adam says he learned this from the Danes, he might be speaking out of his ass. To paraphrase Nansen, when Adam, a German, was willing to claim that dog-faced people and Amazons populated the Baltic countries, you may start to wonder what he was capable of claiming about more distant places. He also claimed that all Norwegian women were covered in hair, which is true. Nansen also refers to a 12th century account only preserved in 15th century manuscripts. The places Vinland the Good not only off the western coast of Africa, as the case is with many classical descriptions of Fortunate Isles, but even hints at an Icelandic folk belief that Vinland and Africa were part of the same continent. And this may illustrate the aforementioned Icelandic confusion about what exactly lay behind the name Vinland, specifically, and may not call into question the discovery of America per se. But there is one more Irish story that might put the final nail in the Vinlandic coffin, so to speak. The Navigatio Sancti Brendandi Abatis, or the Voyage of St. Brennan the Abbot. The eponymous saint makes a visit to a fortunate type isle named the Isle of Grapes. The earliest manuscripts associated with the story are dated to the 10th century, which would not only precede Adam of Bremen, but the discovery of Vinland itself. To twist the knife on the Icelandic accounts, Nansen calls into question the winemaking skills of ice and Greenlanders and states an opinion that the grapes, even if they found them, Would have made for a grossly inferior product, doubly subverting Adam's rumor of the supposedly high standard of Vinland wine. As a counterfactual thought experiment, I would have to personally disagree with Nansen's closed-minded notion of viticulture and what constitutes a good wine. Wild Native American grapes have features that are quite different from old world vines, and that's exactly what it is, a feature. I for one would love to taste a funky, non-backsweetened spontaneously fermented wild grape wine, combining the foxiness of mainstream American wines with the tartness and low-alcohol percentage of a dry cider. Mm. If anybody out there would run that experiment, that's an instant seal of approval from Brut Norse. So to finish up with Vinland the Good, it seems exceedingly likely to me that if Vinland wasn't entirely made up by saga authors, it was certainly influenced by the corpus of European monastic and scholarly traditions. Here's what I find to be the most probable. The Norse discovery of North America fit nicely with the widely held belief in fortunate isles around Europe. The description of this literal newfound land, and maybe even the name itself, was applied to Vinland retrospectively. Apart from these fantastic details, the sagas describe Norse presence in the northwestern Atlantic as dismal and harsh. This seems more in line with the archaeological reality, and supports what else we know about the eventual demise of the Norse Atlantic periphery. Nansen himself, being an experienced navigator failed to be swayed by the technical specifics of inland travel as described in the sagas. On the flip side, the narratives of inland as a land of bounty and opportunity must have been like music to the ears of later nation builders who could just slap it on to the image of America as a land of wonder, fortune and opportunity. As for the belief in wondrous isles in the Nordic tradition, there is such a thing as taking the Irish connection too far And the question of loans from this or that culture stops making sense very fast. The same applies to the idea that some scholars have had that all of these ideas are directly descended from Plato, which would be impressive if true, but I think there's a limit even to Plato's grip on western culture. Elements of these legends may be culture specific, but their underlying mechanisms may be common to many cultures and civilizations. One such being the existence of a secretive race of humanoid beings, often invisible or living underground, it would be pointless to try and pinpoint the cultural origin of such a general idea. With the Vanishing Isles of the Nordic Area, my main source has been a thesis from 1970 called De lykkelege øyane i norsk folketradition by Jan E. Byberg, The Joyous Isles in Norwegian Folk Tradition. As far as I know, this is the only proper overview of Vanishing Isles in the Nordic Area, and I'll be linking to this and some of the other sources in the show notes on brutnors.com. Now, in this gem of a publication, Beeberg counts a total of 161 examples spread unevenly across Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland and the Faroe Islands. He also divides them into various subcategories and discusses uh, their peculiarities, that we won't really get into that much here. Among these 161 islands, 17 are Sami, 6 are Faroese, 5 are Danish, 2 are Icelandic, 125 of them are Norwegian, the Swedish have only one. But to make up for it, this one island is the Isle of Gotland. These are supernatural islands held to exist or have existed that are either kept hidden or lay hidden in the past until some kind of incident revealed them or kept them from sinking into the ocean again. Often they are only approachable by invitation, by accident, or by people in need. They are often overflowing with various bounties and fat livestock, as well as being inhabited by Hulderfolk, that is to say, a certain kind of subterranean humanoid or nature spirit in Nordic folklore. The term Hulder, by the way, seems to originate as a taboo term to avoid calling the creatures by their true name. Etymologically, Hulderfolk means the hidden people, and is related to Hel, which is both the name of an underworld as well as death personified in Norse mythology. These people are also called Hitfolke, which means the yonder people and it would not be totally wrong to call them elves. But for Norway's case, this is not a very common term. I also avoid using such a name not out of fear of rousing the hidden people, but to avoid its modern and very glamorous and even glittery connotations. The Hüllerfolk are important figures in romantic Norwegian notions of naturmystik or nature mystique, nature mysticism even, where they embody a natural, seductive and chaotic complement to human society. Representing our longing towards nature's beauty as a fatal attraction, luring the young and impressionable away from society and into the untamed, where suffering and damnation awaits them. On the flip side, Hilderfolk aren't always as bad as people make them out to be. If you treat them well, they often show their tender side, and you'll find that they can be both friendly and hospitable, but they may try to sweet-talk you into staying forever. I will be very mad if you decline. The coastal belief in vanishing islands, complements the inland belief in Huldur farms, also known for their great crops and precious livestock. There are many elements here that cross over into motifs that we know even in the saga literature, for instance in the Sogur. But sticking to historical and legendary accounts similar to the core folklore tradition, the very first Scandinavian Huldur Isle appears to be the Isle of Gotland, which is also, as you may remember, the only Swedish example in Biberg's Count. This comes from a 13th-century old Gutnish text called Guta Saga, or the Saga of the Guts, or Gotlanders. It talks about the political division of Gutnish society, its pagan past, the Gothic migrations, and the Christianization. But it kicks off with a Hildurland legend straight off the bat in the first paragraph. It goes like this: Gotland hiti fyrsti mader than som fjell var hit, þa var Gotland so elvist at dagum sank Oknatum nattum var uppi. And then Mother first the oxidan sank aldri. Gotland was first found by a man named Thielwar. Gotland was so elvish then that it sank by day and was up at night. But that man was the first to carry fire to the land, and since it never sank again. This is a very classic Hilderland legend. You have the island that sinks and rises due to some supernatural force. In this case, it is described explicitly as being Elwist, that is to say, elvish. But there is also the incident that breaks the spell, which turns it into a myth of origin for the place in question. It is really the process of creating order from chaos. In the legendary sagas, you have characters such as Olav Tretelja, which literally means Olaf the woodcutter, who was exiled from society, and now being deprived of this civilizational security, he goes into the woods and starts chopping down trees to create a society for himself. Hence creating order from disorder. And what is more disorderly than an island that won't stay still? The story of Tjálvar is an exaggerated version of essentially a very common, pre-modern way of seeing nature. The island is quite literally supernatural, and fire is perhaps the strongest symbol of not only survival, but the civilizational conquering of death and disorder. Therefore, the act that breaks the spell of the vanishing island takes the form of the island being polluted by some sort of cultural product. In Guta Saga, it is fire that breaks Gotland's elvish spell, but another way to make an island stick is with steel, which works as a wondrous cure-all against all kinds of supernatural tomfoolery. Not too far from where I grew up. There's an island called Utsira, and this is the manner in which this island came to be. Let's give it a listen Once upon a time a man from Okra was rowing around to try his luck in fishing He was sitting in his boat with his back towards the west chewing his tobacco as he often did Because of this the need soon came for him to turn his head and spit and when he did He could hardly believe his eyes when he spied over his shoulder that a great big land had risen from the sea behind him. The fisherman realized immediately that this land could not have appeared by any natural cause, and so he turned his eyes away from the island and dared not look at it again, because he knew that if he took even the smallest peak, the island would rush to sink back down from whence it came. And so, keeping his eyes fixed on the coast... He continued rowing with his back towards the unknown island, and before long, his boat scrubbed against the beach. The fisherman had been around, and may have heard a thing or two about dealing with these sorts of situations, and so he removed the knife from his belt and threw it over his shoulder. The knife stood in the ground, and the island of Sira has been stuck to it ever since. I'm reluctant to adopt some kind of naturalistic explanation for such legends, but A few of these places are associated with very good fishing spots, in the form of shallows and shoals. This seems to oddly chime in with the fact that hulderlands are often rich in resources. In Utsira's case, it is well known for a fishing bank beyond it, and the name Utsira is also quite interesting, because the oldest attested form of the island's name is Sira. While Utsira literally means out Sira. The name may simply account for the fact that Utsira is far out at sea, but it seems almost suggestive of another Sira beyond Sira Of course, this is only speculation, but there is one other supernatural island with the same prefix Close to the very real isle of Rust in northern Norway There are numerous legends about a vanishing isle by the name of Utrust or Outrust in the ocean beyond Rust. This is probably the single most well-attested and spoken about island in all of our material, and it seems to combine a lot of the elements that we are talking about in this episode, so we will save that for last maybe. Unsurprisingly, such islands often make their way into early attempts at natural histories of Scandinavia, and the northern regions more widely. This is not only because people who lived before the Enlightenment were more susceptible to magical ways of thinking, but because they often relied on hearsay and legendary sources. Ulaus Magnus, the Swedish compiler of Nordic weirdness who lived in the 16th century, probably most famous for the woodcuts associated with his work, mentions a kind of whale fish, so large that they are often mistaken for islands, and in fact trick sailors into making landfall and set up camps on their backs. In the following century, Erik Pontopidon, in the very first attempt to write the natural history of Norway, mentions briefly the belief in floating islands in the North Sea. But these islands simply cannot exist, he says, because they would obviously be torn apart by bad weather. Which is a fair point. Instead, he suggests that these so-called islands are none other than the giant sea monster called the Kraken. Which is one particular Nordic contribution to the fantastic world of movie monsters, and liquor brands. We can laugh at this misguided attempt at naturalizing legends, but there are some points to consider. If we recall the account of Vinland, we noticed a combination of different factors contributing to the overarching narrative. Besides local folklore, there were influences from ancient academic texts, but also a core of fact. we can ask ourselves if the same applies to Vanishing Isles. And, as it turns out, there really might be a natural explanation to how or why some of these stories came to be. If we go back to our original example of Gotland, you might be surprised to find that there was actually a point in time where most of Gotland was submerged. This was about 8000 years ago, after the end of the last ice age. Back then the Baltic Sea had not actually formed yet, instead it took the form of a massive freshwater lake, referred to by geologists as Lake Ankyllus. Depending on latitude, the shoreline would have been between 60 and 147 feet higher than it is today. Though it is elevated, Gotland is actually a fairly flat island, and it's entirely possible that Stone Age peoples might have observed its southern cliffs at a time when they were just below the surface. In storms and bad weather, the shallow water would probably create the illusion of a landscape breaking the waves. Of course, this does not conclusively prove that the story of... Gotland coming out of the ocean reflects historical memory. Uh, Then it would have to survive ethnic migrations, massive societal and cultural shifts, and that makes it a whole lot more complicated. Norway, which has the highest concentration of vanishing isles, is an unlikely candidate for this sort of naturalistic explanation. This isn't quite true for some of its neighbors, for example, Denmark. Denmark is pleasantly flat, it's sandy, it's brittle and, geologically, it's kind of vulnerable. Norway sits very firmly and high above the sea level on the Scandinavian peninsula. You could almost say that it would really take a supernatural event to make an island disappear. Apart from the odd rock slide or flood, nature doesn't really open for many dramatic changes in the landscape. But in Denmark, not necessarily. It is often told to the schadenfreude of Norwegian ears that while the grand nation of Norway rises slowly out of the sea, our former masters in Denmark are being slowly washed away. One could hypothetically argue that stories of vanishing isles reflect real historical places that have been flushed out by storm tides and erosion. So a version of the vanishing isle motif in Denmark sometimes takes the form of a village that used to be in the place of inland lakes and marshes. A Danish doomsday legend also talks about the twin isles of Vanner and Glaner. According to the legend, there was a long-standing dispute between the parishes of Vanner and Glanner, and one day a man from Vanner invited the priest from Glanner to finally bury the hatchet. He asked that the priest could come and preach by the sick bed of his wife, but when the priest came a calling, he approached the farmer's wife's bed, and found not a person but a pig, dressed up as a woman. Furious and humiliated, the priest threw a curse on Vanner, and no sooner had he returned to Glanner before the sea washed over Vana and claimed it. On calm days, you can still hear the church bells chiming from the bottom of the sea, where Venö waits for Glänö to follow, which will mark the end of the world. Beyond this, stories from Denmark are fairly sporadic, but we could note that the southern portion of the North Sea Basin was once dry. The so-called Doggerland was an amazingly big, now lost, portion of northern Europe which was actually inhabited by humans prior to its flooding back in the Mesolithic. So some of our more ancient ancestors would actually know such scenarios not as epic or legendary storytelling or even fairy tales but a kind of grim fact of life and where entire populations were displaced by rising sea levels and tsunamis. It is somewhat surprising that Iceland only has two recorded instances of supernatural isles and both examples are regarded by Bibag as being rather dubious. One comes in the form of a very elaborate tale about the legendary Icelandic 16th century wizard Halfdan Narvason, who drifted off in a storm and found some huldufolk living on a non-existent archipelago between Iceland and Greenland, who gave him a spellbook. And when he left, he noticed that there were vast forests stretching out across the ocean floor, implying that a whole different continent is hidden beneath the waves. This actually reminds me a lot of... uh, great 13th century legend recorded in the Norwegian text The King's Mirror, which was essentially an educational text for young nobles, with fun curiosities thrown in to provide breaks from the dry content, such as what kind of whale sperm is good against eye disease, or why you should never carry a concealed dagger when visiting the king. The King's Mirror tells the totally true and wondrous story about an anchor that fell from the sky one day and lodged itself in a certain church door. Of course, people looked up in disbelief to find that a ship was floating in the sky above, and that a man dove from it and swam in thin air down along the anchor cable, as if intending to dislodge it. Some local idiots grabbed the stranger and tried to force him to explain himself, but a quick-witted bishop noted his swimming motions, and presumably his puffy cheeks, and ordered the peasants to release him at once, lest he would surely drown in the air, just like normal folks would drown in water. As soon as he was released, the man swam back up and was hoisted aboard by his fellow crew members, who wisely cut the cable and hastily sailed off. This is said to have happened in Ireland, of course. What does this imply, actually? Are we the Huldufolk of a higher race of beings? And just how many layers of ocean are there, really? Never mind the Flat Earth. Disregard the Hollow Earth. The secret space program can suck my ludifisk. They're just red herrings muddying the waters of the real truth about the cosmos. Consider this episode the start of the Layered Ocean Society, folks. Let's get to the bottom of this. This is the Norse. The only other Icelandic example seems to be an event recorded in the Icelandic annals for the year 1345, mentioning the sudden appearance of a set of islands in Bredafjordur. It is quite possible that this reflects a natural event and not actually a tradition of belief in supernatural isles, Of course, this may or may not have made any difference to 14th century Icelanders when they suddenly found a bunch of new islands popping up overnight. Iceland is rife with volcanic activity, and islands do actually appear and disappear from time to time, and the most famous example is quite recent. Surtse bubbled out of the ocean in 1963. It was also expected to vanish very quickly due to erosion, but it appears to have stabilized somewhat and is not going anywhere anytime soon. Like many vanishing isles, you can only go there by invitation, but this is mainly to protect the flora and wildlife of the island. For us, it is also interesting to note that the island was named after Surtr, who is an Old Norse giant, though I hate that term, a uh, Jotun, and among the most supreme enemies of the gods, with whom they will exchange their final blows at Ragnarok. So that's Surtse. We're finding some really good uh, apocalyptic synchronicities with some of the comparative material here, between the church bells at Venö, and this ogre that forewarns an impending battle with the gods. Animals also play a central role in many legends of vanishing islands. In the case of Werner, you have the disguised pig, who becomes the cause of the vicar's wrath, and hence the curse that befell the island. But it is more usual to find domestic animals, who are just, you know wandering around, minding their own business, doing what animals do, and often swim over to a supernatural island where they get jiggy with the animals of the Huldufolk. This causes the sort of supernatural syntax error that dispels the magic from the island. But there are also many other crossover motifs. When it comes to animals, the non-Norwegian ones are a little bit all over the place, usually because uh, there is only one or two stories that actually involve them, if there are any such stories at all. When it comes to belief in magical isles, it seems that Norway and the Faroe Islands are the ones that are most closely related. Though the Faroes are not exactly without their own quirks. For instance, in the case of the Isle of Mykines, it is quite literally bullshit that breaks the spell. So, for the Norwegian material, Beebag actually provides a schematic for the different traditions surrounding animals discovering supernatural isles. It goes kinda like this. An island was sometimes visible and other times not, or it was invisible to people. There was a man who had a horse or a foal or an oxen or a pig or a ram that would often run away or swim away or had the habit of vanishing and then returning home wet or it would escape and then return with young or it would take its young and swim with them over to the island when it was up. The owner binds the animal or the animal sometimes wears steel it could be a knife, a scissor, a keychain, or it could have a steel ring in its nose. The animal swims back to the island, and then it stays in place. Sometimes the animal turns to stone, sometimes it is found unharmed, unharmed with young, and sometimes with its partner, and sometimes the animal just goes there and is never mentioned again. The island is green, particularly beautiful or fertile, and the owner of the animal becomes the first owner of the island. These islands are, as a rule, islands that you can actually go to. An example from my own region would be Fåløy, which means Fål Island. And the legend states, just like in the schematic, that a horse swam over there and mated with a hulder horse and begat these hulder horse hybrids, I suppose? So this falls into the category of a founding myth. I was probably actually made up to explain the name of, uh, of islands with animal names attached to them, of which there are actually quite a few along the Norwegian coast. The reason for this is actually perfectly rational. It's because that in traditional agriculture, putting your animals on an island keeps them relatively safe from predators and provides an enclosed, decent grazing pasture suitable for certain kinds of animals. There's also an element of pareidolia when it comes to how the landscape is treated in Scandinavian traditions more generally. In pre-Christian Sami religion, the sacred properties of a stone or a rock formation was often determined on whether or not it looked like a certain animal, or if it looked like a door, and so on. Pareidolia, by the way, is the human cognitive ability to see patterns in nature, perhaps a bit unsympathetically characterized as the ability to see patterns that aren't there. Likewise, many places in Norway were named according to similar criteria. There's a place in Hordaland called Bjørnarumpa, which means the bear's ass, and a place by the name of something like Svinøy, which is actually very common and means swine island, maybe named so because it looks like the boar, like a boar's snout or something along those lines. And of course, we may note in at least a few of these stories the animal actually turns to stone. So the story would seem to be confirmable by the fact that you can actually go to this island and identify the rock formation that sort of looks like an animal. It is not usual that animals turn to stone. This is generally a trait associated with certain supernatural entities in Scandinavian folklore, chiefly trolls. And many landscape formations are really attributed to events associated with such entities. There is certainly no shortage of cool rabbit holes on the subject of place names, with or without animals. Given the antiquity and the prevalence of some of these motifs in a Norwegian or more widely Scandinavian conceptions of the world, you would think that we have many ancient uh, sources for this. But as the case often is, when you start to follow folklore a little bit more closely, when you start looking really into the chronology of things, interesting patterns start emerging. A lot of the stuff that is interesting with the Vanishing Isles is the comparative material a lot of the sources we have really aren't that old, at least not in their epic form, though there are many motifs that we can find in the sagas and even the edic poetry. And here and there, there are also a few scattered phrases that have deviating linguistic forms that suggest an origin not in the modern Norwegian, but the Old Norse language. Just because an idea is attested in one place for the first time, and it takes hundreds of years before it is attested in another place, this does not mean that the... First recorded instance is the place where this idea was invented. Folklore is a very organic thing, you know. I'm I'm not a folklorist, I don't have the vocabulary to give a, a good rundown of the current scholarly consensus on migratory legends or whatever. But you know, you know, it's uh, we live in a society, and so did the British. Sometime in the early 12th century, William of Malmesbury gives what seems to be the first attested version of the pig sullying the magical island motif. Fittingly, he claims that the Arthurian Isle of Avalon, which he identifies as Glastonbury, was first settled by a farmer who followed his eight-legged sow to an apple tree, where it begat a litter of piglets. This is a possible indication of British influence, but who really knows? I think we can all agree. It seems oddly in place that a fruity town like Glastonbury should be founded over an eight-legged pig having a toss in an orchard. That being said, beautiful place, great bookstores, courtyard books, total support. Now, as I may or may not have implied, most of the Norwegian sources are actually far, far later. The first description of a vanishing island in Norway doesn't come to us until 1591, when a certain Erik Hansen Schöneböll accounts in his description of Lofoten the properties of a certain bird called the seahorse and its responses to various abuses. This is what he says. There is a certain kind of bird that people call seahorses, which I believe to be the same bird that Pliny calls Halcyon. This bird is not afraid of people, but he approaches the boat closely and eats everything of that which they throw out. His voice is like that of a horse when he neighs, and his feathers are grey, and he is not quite as large as a small seagull. His beak is like a gull's, and on top of the beak, close to the eyes are two big holes, like a horse's nostril which are apparently, his nostrils. He is not edible, and apparently he reeks with a mean and poisonous smell. Not many want to touch him, but if someone strikes him with the broadside of an oar so that he lies plain dead on the ocean, then will come two others among his brothers in arms, and rend him with horrible shrieks until he skedaddles away with the others. Truthfully, I've also been told by good and honest folks that if a man desires to capture this bird alive and bind a little steel on him, then his companions would feel it and immediately know that he carries steel on his body, and therefore they all gather around him and tear all his feathers off, and if they can't get the steel off him, then, then they tear him to death and fly away. The bird isn't usually seen apart from dark weather, or else it keeps itself out in the wild sea on islands that no Christian man visits or knows how to describe. Many people are of the opinion that the same seahorse is a bird, and thus he cannot tolerate steel, because if that steel came to their land, it is reckoned that the same land would be revealed. But I hold this to be a fable. Though it is often proven that if you bind steel to the bird and release him, then all the others will tear his feathers off before they rip him to death. But why they do so? (laughs) Hmm. That must God know. Who all things know? End of quote. This so-called seahorse is in fact the northern fulmar, a gull-like bird that often gets by on refuse and carrion. But there is another bird since associated with the belief in vanishing isles in northern Norway, and that is the cormorant, which is intrinsically tied to the isle of Utøyst. Utøyst is a hulder isle, and probably the one with the most stories and traditions associated with it. It is used as a possible explanation for all sorts of mysterious phenomena in and around Lofoten in the far north of Norway. Because the isle of Utøyst is so well attested, we can note a couple of things regarding the typology of the island. For example, it does not sink or rise out of the ocean, but rather is invisible to human eyes. It is even possible to pass through Utrust without noticing yourself, as the isle is prone to staying unmanifested and is unapproachable to most people. But to some, it will phase into existence and reveal itself as a lush green isle teeming with life. Sending expeditions to the island is a lost cause, unless you find yourself among the very few legendary individuals who are on good terms with the hidden people. One such figure was the Breisrand Finn, a sort of sailing wizard and apparently a sea-sami, who was able to visit Utrust as he pleased, usually to escape storms on the open ocean. If you've ever seen Tarkovsky's classic film Stalker, he seems to play a part not entirely dissimilar to the eponymous main character. In Tarkovsky's film, the stalker guides people to the mysterious room in the center of the area simply called the Zone, where your desires can manifest and normal laws of nature don't quite apply. Similarly, the round Finn acts as a middleman able to find a supernatural place that is also characterized by some of the greatest desires of traditional society, namely security in the form of fecundity and plenty over the relative harshness and insecurities of a traditional farmer-fisherman lifestyle. The main anxieties of such a livelihood are tied to the success rate of seasonal activities. We may note that the Huller people's cattle are fat and they lack nothing in terms of agriculture. Their lands are rich in seals and bird life, and they always know stupidly great fishing spots. So let's listen to a short snippet from one such legend about a ship carrying the round Fin as one of its crew members. It jumps straight into the action, quote, One time, while they lay out in the West Fjord, A large mist appeared, and heavy seas with it, and hard weather all round. As they drifted, they suddenly found themselves in a bay, but, as far as the crew could determine, they were supposed to be well out at sea, so this came unexpectedly, as you can understand. Now they dropped anchor, but the fog was so dense that it was just as if they were approaching land, and as they lay there, they were yanked, and now they saw to their confusion that the land was flat and open. On either side of the ship, and green and beautiful wherever they looked. And on the fields were large herds of cattle grazing, but they could see no people around. The Breistrand Finn had then explained to them where they were. We are now in Utrust, he said. Another time they were sailing in the west fjord, the same thing happened again. They took harbour in Utrust, but this time they had sailed the sloop straight through a cornfield, and they could tell because there were ears of grain stuck to the vessel." This kind of brings us back to those counterintuitive concepts, doesn't it? A lot of these people were living in the latter stages of the Hanseatic monopoly on the stockfish trade, which meant that all dried cod, which was an economic staple at the time, could only go through these German traders. If the fisheries failed one season, the Hanseatic League would allow them to buy goods and conveniences on credit, but in practice? This left swaths of Norwegian fishermen in crippling debt that was passed down from one generation to another. The idea of never lacking anything to eat and a steady supply of catch to sell must have seemed like paradise. Not totally unlike the stories of Vinland for that matter. Also this character of the Breestrand Finn acts almost like the character archetype of the magic negro that you've all seen in American movies. Somebody who is both the ethnic other and also the magical other who performs as a medium or conduit of fantastic events. The idea that the Sami people are somehow more magical than other people is as old as Nordic literature itself, and probably even as ancient as Scandinavian-Germanic and Sami relations. It also goes in the opposite direction, but that's a story for another time. What's important is that if you find yourself suddenly unable to find the post office because it keeps phasing out of existence, Why not bind a little steel to an animal? Or maybe if you have an indigenous friend, you can ask them for assistance. Or, you know, I'm not gonna generalize, maybe you're indigenous yourself, and maybe you can ask your spirit friends for help. Heck, you can even do as the Gotlanders and torch the goddamn thing. Anyway, I hope that this was an interesting episode, and that I did not overwhelm you with the intricacies and peculiarities of this particular phenomenon of Nordic cultural history. This episode was quite different from other episodes so far, and I'm not gonna lie, it was quite demanding and time-consuming to make. Uh, which is why you had to wait so long to get it You can probably expect more content like this in the future due to my relative isolation here on the Big Apple But thanks to my wonderful and generous patrons I've been able to buy Axel a microphone and hopefully he'll be joining us for an episode very soon If you want to become a patron go on patreon.com forward slash on that note I think that it's about time that we part ways. Thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you for being my friend as we walked backwards into the future here on the Boot Noise Podcast.